So this is our Simone Don reading group starting at a new time this week, but we're continuing our reading of Individuation Volume 2, uh, the history of the notion of the individual. We're, we're still on that text. So we're picking up from page 464 in the translation for those following along. Um, we Last week, we um, finished the section on Plato, and we mostly, in the last part on, on Plato, we looked at um, the, the doctrine of the Timaeus, which is um, Plato's um, sort of cosmological book um, in which he uh, gives an account uh, that he describes as a, a probable account is something that we can't have true knowledge about because it has to do with becoming, but it's a, a probable account of the creation of the world. Um, and this creation of the world has to do with uh, the way that the this entity called the Demiurge um, takes these elements and puts them together in these mathematical structures that um, um, sort of uh, make the world into something well-structured and uh, organized and uh, a cosmos in the true sense of the word, um, which in Greek, uh, cosmos uh, um, has to do with the the notion of order and, and beauty. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we looked at the, the Timaeus and how this, um, this structure of the world uh, comes to be. Uh, and we also talked a little bit about the uh, esoteric doctrine of, of the Platonic school. So um, there, there's some reference in Aristotle and, and I think some other texts uh, from that era about uh, Plato having this teaching that was reserved to the members of the academy. So that was um, not published at the time and, and not sort of uh, made public. Uh, and so, of course, we only have sort of fragments of what exactly this esoteric teaching consisted in. Um, but there's um, what we get from through Aristotle is this uh, notion of the um, the indefinite dyad. So the this sort of um, ontological pair of uh, contraries. Uh, so any any set of contraries like the hot and the cold or the high pitched and the low pitched and so on, um, they all sort of uh, arise out of this indefinite dyad, um, this sort of uh, ontological principle of duality. Um, and, um, and then there's uh, this notion of idea numbers. So there is um, something kind of in intermediate between the realm of the forms or the ideas and um, physical reality, there are these idea uh, idea numbers, which are these sort of principles of um, limitation and determination of, of entities. Um, so we have this indefinite dyad, which is this sort of um, unlimited uh, or indefinite um, principle. And then you have this principle of limitation or, or definition, which is the uh, these number ideas. Um, and and so, sort of through the the combination of these two or the interaction of these two, we end up with um, defined entities or entities that um, are limited and uh, uh, determinate. Uh, and then there's um, some discussion in in the last bit of the Plato section of the the relationship between these doctrines and uh, the political. Uh, careers of some of the uh, the students who um, who studied 
in Plato's Academy. Um, and there's, so there's a sort of um, paradox in the sense that um, Plato is very uh, suspicious of Athenian democracy. Um, he, he thinks that it, it um, sort of uh, allows for irrational political decision-making. Um, it, it allows for people to, um, people that are not um, necessarily the most, um, the wisest or the best people to take power. Um, and uh, yet at the same time, many of Plato's students end up becoming uh, uh, famous politicians within Athenian democracy. Um, and Simondon argues, um, and I think this is a not, uh, not sort of a, um, uh, a widely shared opinion, but he argues that the, the um, esoteric doctrine, this idea of the um, idea numbers, um, may have played a role in sort of um, making possible this political career of the uh, members of the academy uh, in in the sense that there's this notion of um, becoming immortal through the the sensible or through um, becoming uh, and, and so as opposed to the what um, the doctrine that we find in some of the published dialogues in which there's this uh, strict opposition between the realm of the eternal and um, sort of orienting one's life to uh, eternal um, ideas like uh, justice or, or beauty and so on. Um, and then on the other hand, um, the actions in the sensible world, uh, what Simon Don argues is that um, in, in this uh, um, notion of the idea numbers, we have some sort of idea of uh, uh, a sort of reconciliation of the eternal and the realm of becoming. So it's through through action in the realm of becoming that we uh, sort of create a immortality for ourselves. Uh, and, and so this doctrine of um, immortality through becoming is uh, sort of what makes possible this uh, idea of participating within the realm of Athenian democracy and uh, creating a sort of um, immortality for oneself in that realm. Uh, and then uh, one other point that uh, sort of leads us into Aristotle is that um, the opposition between the indefinite dyad and the number ideas, uh, Simon Don argues this is a sort of precursor to the hylomorphic doctrine of Aristotle, so the, the doctrine of um, entities being composed of a, a matter and a form. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see uh, a bit more about that hylomorphic doctrine today when we get through the, the Aristotle section. Um, but uh, it's uh, in general, there's um, uh, this idea of an individual as being composed of something indefinite or unlimited, uh, and then uh, some sort of limitation or definition that is imposed on the indefinite. Uh, this um, this is sort of shared between the Platonic theory and the Aristotelian theory. Uh, in in both cases, we have this um, sort of duality of the individual, um, in in the sense that um, these two principles are are essential to forming an individual. Uh, and um, as we've seen in Volume One of the Individuation book. Uh, Simon Don opposes this doctrine of 
uh, hylomorphism or the sort of more general doctrine of this duality of the individual um, uh, composed of uh, something de definite and something indefinite. Um, uh, and so he, he thinks that this conception sort of leads to um, sort of um, uh, aporias that we can't escape from. And so we'll see a little bit more about that later today. Okay. So uh, I can read the first page or so if you want me to. Yeah, sure. Of the Aristotle section. Okay, so yeah. um, Aristotle. Aristotle conserves and fixes this dismemberment of the unity of the element of the Ionian physiologists. If we wanted to express in Aristotelian terms the theory of the element with its own uh, physis, we would have to say that potency is always contemporary with the act, and yet that that act admits an extremely broad variety of forms without there being any privileged and definitive form relative to the forms that have preceded it or will be able to follow it. Conversely, for Aristotle, act is anterior to potency in the logical, temporal, and substantial sense. The notion of being and potency implies that of being and act. Being and act does not arise from a being and potency except under the effect of another being that is already an act. Being and potency derives all its essence from a being and act. Existence can only be given as an actual as actual integrally determined substances and the indetermination that may exist in the world can exist only relative to forms that are more complete. Aristotle defines every existing being as an individual and his conception of individuality radically excludes becoming because quiddity, that which without progress or deficiency integrally belongs to a given form from its birth to its disappearance is not susceptible to more or less. One is not more or less man. For the individual being, essence is the fact of continuing to be what it was. O, T, N, A, N, I. This essence or form does not include becoming. Becoming, in fact, consists in the union of a form with a being that can receive it. This being in potency is matter. Act is the center of reference with respect to which beings in potency, which are conceived as such not through what they are, but through what they can become, are ordered and situated. According to this principle of the interiority of the act, Aristotle cannot accept the atomistic form of the genesis of elementary individualities, which Plato accepted and perfected by means of stereometry. The being's unity does not result from the conjunction or juxtaposition of material parts, since these parts are posterior to the being. According to Aristotle, the material parts of a being are posterior to its existence. In this sense, the material parts of a circle are the segments into which it is divisible. Only the formal parts found the being's unity through their union. Conversely, the material parts are posterior to the being in act, of which they are the parts. Thus, the definition of the semicircle first requires that of the circle, since the latter implies the former. The acute angle, a material part of the right angle, is nevertheless logically posterior to the right angle, since it is defined as the angle smaller than a right angle. Similarly, the hand is posterior and not anterior to the essence of the living body, since it would not be able to exist as a hand apart from this body. Um, so this, I have a fairly limited understanding of Aristotle, but this, I, my understanding of the point that he's making here, at least part of it about the exclusion of becoming is the idea that, um, becoming is limited to, uh, something like the achievement of the, the, the telos of whatever, like, you know, whatever, uh, the essence of the individual is or the type of the individual in question, like the becoming of 
the child into the adult or the becoming of a acorn into an oak tree. Um, and I don't know, it, which seems to be a subordination of becoming to being. Yeah, that's, um, we'll get to that bit about the, um, becoming of the child into the adults in a, in a little bit, but, um, I think the, the idea here is that, um, when we, uh, so there's sort of, there's two things there's, um, first is the idea that in any sort of change, any sort of becoming, there's always something that doesn't change. So, um, uh, there, the, um, properties that change so you can have a property of um being a child uh and then later on you have the property of being an adult um th those properties change uh but they the properties themselves in here in something that doesn't change so in a, a substance um uh and and so the 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 essence of that entity um the being human is something that doesn't change uh so um, and likewise, you know, something that is cold and becomes hot, um, the property of heat has to inhere in something that doesn't itself change. Um, so it, it can be, a, I don't know, a piece of metal or whatever, but the, the, the essence of that, um, of that piece of metal um, doesn't change. It, it doesn't um, uh, become something uh, completely different. Um, so there's uh, this doctrine um in which uh change always occur uh, always occurs in something that doesn't itself uh, change um so it's always the change of properties of something um which is uh defined by uh, an unchanging essence uh so that's the first point um and then the second point has to do with um so change change is always or becoming uh or motion is the aristotelian term it, is always um uh, is always um, from potency into act. Uh, so there's always something uh, uh, potential. Um, so like uh, in the example you mentioned, like the, the acorn uh, is potentially an oak tree. It's not yet actually an oak tree, but it has the capacity to become an oak tree um, in the right circumstances. Uh, so the becoming, the growth of the uh, acorn into an oak tree is always from the potential into the actuality of actually being an oak tree. Um, but uh, even though in the life cycle of a of a an oak tree, the potential to be an oak tree comes first uh, before the actual oak tree. Uh, Aristotle holds that um, in the sort of bigger picture, it's always. Uh, the actuality that precedes the uh, potentiality. So the the acorn comes from an existing actual oak tree um, that um, that um, has the capacity to reproduce itself, and uh, it's only because there's an actual oak tree um, that the acorn can come to be in the first place. Uh, and likewise for a human being. Uh, it's only because there's um, an actual human being, uh, an, an adult a human being that is capable of reproduction, that uh, that um, the child who has the potential to become an adult uh, can come to be in the first place. Uh, so um, temporally, the uh, actuality has priority over the potentiality. 
and then also logically. So um, you can only understand the potential uh, insofar as you define it in terms of the actual. So like the the potential oak tree is defined in terms of the actual oak tree. Uh, the potential adult uh, that a, a child is is defined in terms of the actual adult. Um, so it there's not only the temporal priority of the actual over the potential, but also the um, logical priority of the actual over the potential. Uh, so these these two doctrines together. So the the doctrine of uh, change as inhering in something that doesn't itself change, and then the doctrine of the priority of actuality over potentiality, they, they both um, imply, um, as you suggested, a, a, a sort of um, priority of being over becoming. Um, so there's, there's always, um, there's always, uh, becoming is always relative to a certain being uh, in, in these various senses. Is that one of the reasons why there has to be this fixity of the species um, to sort of guarantee the priority of actuality that there is always like a an oak tree that precedes the acorn right yeah um so this is another doctrine of, of aristotle this fixity of the species um meaning that um aristotle rejects any sort of evolutionary doctrine like we saw with empedocles a few weeks ago um, um so he holds that uh, all the species of um, animals and plants and and even uh um, minerals and and so on are are fixed, um, and uh, every entity belongs to a specific species. Um, uh, and yeah, so because uh, um, there well, there's a few reasons for this doctrine. Um, so as you su suggested, there's the um, there's this uh, idea of the the priority of the um, of the actual over the potential, um, which requires a sort of uh, indefinite uh, chain going backwards of uh, oak trees being uh, prior to the acorns from which the next generation of oak trees arises. Um, so for Aristotle, there's no such thing as a creation of the world um, or a starting point of the world. Uh, the world is indefinitely um, extended back in time. Um, um, but uh, another reason for this doctrine of the fixity of species is that um, there's a, a, a sort of perfection of nature in the sense that nature doesn't do anything um, superfluous or unnecessary. Um, and for Aristotle, um, if you come, if you have the idea of an evolutionary doctrine like Empedocles, uh, in this doctrine, you have all kinds of um, monsters or forms. Uh, you have all the parts that sort of come together. Uh, and form these monsters which just die out uh, and don't leave any uh, um, uh, offspring. Um, and for Aristotle, this would be a sort of um, superfluous production of nature. So instead of actually just creating the the fixed species, nature instead produces these monsters and then the species arise out of those, uh, um, the, the whole set of um, entities that are created through this uh, uh, conjunction of parts. Um, and so uh, I, this doctrine of the perfection of nature is also um, at work in the, uh, in the notion of the fixity of species. And then one other point um, that Simon Do mentions here is um, 
the the priority of the whole over the part. Um, and again, this is opposed to um, Empedocles' doctrine, according to which you have uh, all these parts that um, come together in, in random configurations until we arrive at the sort of harmonious um, uh, structure of animals and, and other organisms that we see in, in the world around us. Um, instead, for Aristotle, the, the whole is, is prior to the part, um, both logically and uh, temporally. Um, so um, one example that, that Aristotle gives is that a hand, um, if, you, if you consider the hand as a part of a living body, and then the hand that's been cut off uh, and is just sort of lying there, um, they, they only share, um, they share a name, but they aren't the same kind of thing. Uh, the hand that's part of a living body um, has, you know, the, the capacity to grasp things and to perform actions and so on, whereas the the hand that's been cut off is uh, uh, is just a, a sort of dead piece of meat. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't have these capacities. Um, and so um, the instead of having a doctrine in which you start from the parts and sort of build them up into a whole, Instead, it's the whole living animal or the whole living organism or the whole um, entity in general that comes first. And then we can analyze the various parts of which it's composed uh, insofar. And, and when we perform that analysis, we understand the parts insofar as they make up the whole. Um, so we understand the hand when we understand how the hand contributes to the, the general uh, sort of functioning of the human being to which it belongs. Uh, and so it's a, a sort of finalistic um, doctrine in the sense that you only understand an entity, uh, you, only, you only understand the parts of an entity insofar as you understand their function or their purpose for the, um, the, the uh, operation of that entity as a whole. And this, um, so there's a lot in the Aristotelian understanding of living beings that, of course, is um, sort of uh, obsolete at this point. Um, but at the same time, this notion of function is a, a key one in biology even today. Um, and um, there's a whole sort of literature about um, the relationship between function uh, concepts of, you know, saying that a wing is for flying or something like that, or the heart is for pumping blood. Um, you, there's a, a whole literature about the relationship between these function concepts and um, the evolutionary concepts and how exactly those two fit together. Um, uh, there's, um, uh, you know, you can, you can try to sort of reduce function concepts to evolutionary terms and say that um, uh, 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 an organ or a, a, a part of a, an animal is... Um, has a certain function insofar as it um, contributes to the reproductive success of the animal in which the in which it, it of which it is a part um, uh, in in a particular way. So you know uh, animals that have wings um, are reproductively successful insofar as those wings contribute to making the animal able to fly um, and and so on. Um, uh, and you know, there's various difficulties in, in how exactly to formulate this notion or this uh, reduction of the functional to the evolutionary. Um, but uh, um, 
yeah, the, this description of parts in terms of functions uh, is obviously not done in quite the same way that Aristotle did it, but it, it's still a, a key um, notion of biology that you, if you want to understand what a part of an animal or of a, a living organism is, you have to understand what its function is in the life of that organism as a whole. Okay, so let's go on to the next uh, page or so. So I'll read this bit. Furthermore, the genesis of individual beings based on a primordial productive force like thesis is impossible. Aristotle does not suppose that an undetermined element, an aperon, containing a dynamism of development can exist. Aristotle can conceive beings only as already individualized. Aristotle does not conceive that the being can be in act without already being individualized. The elements of the Ionian physiologists are not the being in act. Here there is a radical difference in the conception of being. Potency, which for Aristotle is merely a possibility, was for the Ionians, to the extent that this concept was distinct for them, an active and positive capacity of individuation within the indefinite element. The Ionians considered that the observable state of the world, wherein the separation of the, of the elements and the individuality of beings is revealed, results from an equally actual primordial state, but a state in which being was neither separated into elements nor carved up into individuals. Aristotle not only conceives the individual as always in act, which is expressed by the permanence of quiddity, he also considers that there is no part of the being that is not individualized. The whole being is composed of individuals. In the Ionian conception of the world, there is, on the contrary, a great reserve of non-individualized being from which and to which individualized beings arise and return. Plato had begun to individualize everything by including the whole universe in the providential order of the cosmos, as it is thought by the Demiurge. In his, his doctrine, only the Korah still constituted that which, uh, that which of being is not individualized. But the individuality of the cosmos is an individuality that comes onto the world from above and envelops it in a somewhat loose manner. Since all things are part of this indi universal individuality, the attachment of each sensible thing to this principle of cosmic order can only be theoretically constrictive. The separation of the ideas leaves a certain de facto consistency to particular individualities. In Aristotle, on the contrary, quote, beings do not wish to be badly governed, unquote, and moreover, form is interior to each being. The individuation of all beings is consequently much more precise. However, it is because everything is an individual that potency cannot be anything but an apparent, inconsistent virtuality, qua virtuality, anterior to act. In order for potency to be anything but this pure virtuality thought, logikos, or by way of the logos, there would have to be before the state of individualization, the possibility of a state of actual non-individualization for the being. Plato's thought considerably reduced the possibility of this state of non-individualization, and Aristotle conserved this reduction from Plato by emphasizing it through the refusal of what he calls separate ideas. This is how we wind up with a system of pure actuality with Aristotle. The theory of knowledge itself is consequently transformed. Dialectics disappears and the universal is known in sensation. Quote, for though one perceives the particular perception as of the universal, e.g. of man, but not of Callias the man, unquote. Essence, usia, is veritably being qua being, i.e. that which does not refer to a superior principle, that which is truly radical principle. Every genetic explanation of essences is henceforth impossible. Moreover, every indetermination must be explained as relative to forms that are more complete. Nevertheless, the relation for which Plato accounted by means of the number ideas becomes difficult to think in Aristotle's system. This is why it is contemplated in the physics more so than in the metaphysics. Motion is the act of the possible qua possible. The rapport of form to matter consequently takes on an important meaning and requires a certain anteriority of potency relative to act. 
Physics reinstates what metaphysics denies, but it does so by conserving the idea of a potency already included in an individual. Potency is potency of the individual. The child grows insofar as it is a child, i.e. because it has the possibility of reaching adult size and not insofar as it is a living being of a certain size. Physis is not denied, but incorporated into the individual as a rapport of form and matter, after which the existence of the non-individualized being has been nullified so as not to admit any other reality than one that is fully, fully active. Motion must belong to a subject that does not change during becoming. This is why Aristotle excluded generation and corruption, the birth of a substance and its death, from the types of motion. This passage from being to non-being and from non-being to being is not a movement like alternation, augmentation, or diminution, local movement. Indeed, the starting point for these three types of, of movement is the privation of a certain quality, and the end point is the possession of this quality. Every movement takes place between contraries. However, quote, no substance has a contrary, unquote. The generation of a substance is abruptly discontinuous. It arises in an indivisible instant. Aristotle thereby affirms that indefinite and unlimited fusis conceived as universal flux does not exist. There is no flux of substantial forms. The substantial form, which as final cause has directed the series of modifications that have primed matter to receive it, remains stable and identical. Science penetrates moving things, yet this is to affirm that motion is the motion of individual beings. Right, so we have... Um, an opposition here that Simondon sets up between um, Aristotle's conception of becoming and the um, Ionian physiologist's conception of becoming. Uh, and so for the Ionian physiologist, there was this um, principle of thesis, um, this uh, natural principle of growth and development and sort of this impulse to, to becoming um, that's inherent in the elements themselves. So um, um, the the elements have this capacity to uh, undergo transformation, uh, sort of built into them. They're they're dynamic elements and not static ones. Whereas for Aristotle, um, the what something is made of, the the matter um, of which it's composed, is not something that has this uh, capacity for um, bringing about transformation already within it. Um, the matter of, a, of an entity is passive. It, um, it uh, receives the form uh, in, in this passive manner. The form is sort of imposed on the matter, and it's the form, it's in virtue of having a certain form that uh, an entity undergoes change. So it's, um, it's because uh, the child has the form of a human being that they uh, grow and uh, transform into an adult uh, or like the the acorn um, has the form of an oak tree um, as its telos as it as what it um, is oriented towards and so it's by virtue of having this form that it, it uh, undergoes transformation and grows and becomes an oak tree uh, so um, and and this is um, sort of modeled on the uh, experience of uh, technical transformation of entities. Um, so taking um, a, a, some matter of a particular kind and imposing a certain form on it. And this uh, this experience is analyzed um, at length in, in volume one of individuation. As we, as we saw, um, there's, um, uh, yeah, there's this um, obscure zone in the middle where the form and the matter meet each other. Um, 
that the hylomorphic schema is not able to explain. Uh, and uh, um, so this is Simondo's sort of fun fundamental objection to the hylomorphic uh, schema uh, is that obscure zone. And here he also, Simondon also uh, contrasts um, uh, Aristotle's doctrine of the individual with, with Plato's. Um, so for Plato, we have, um, of course, this these separable ideas or these separate ideas. So um, the ideas uh, have uh, an existence uh, in themselves, which is separate from the entities that participate in those ideas. And so the, the individual entities that... Um, corresponds to the idea of uh, a human being or whatever, um, those entities have a certain uh, substantiality or, or uh, probably not the right word because of the way that Aristotle uses that term, but they have a, a certain um, uh, independent existence uh, separate from the ideas in which they participate. Whereas for Aristotle, because the, the form of an entity is... Uh, uh, inherent in that entity and doesn't have a separate existence, um, there's a, a much closer bond between the the form of the entity or, or the um, essence of an entity and that ent entity itself. Um, so there's a, um, the, um, as, as Simon Don puts it here, the individuation of entities is much more precise in, in Aristotle than it is in Plato. So there's a certain um, looseness of fit between uh, entities uh, and the essences or the ideas to which they belong or that they participate in in Plato, whereas in Aristotle there's no sort of gap between the entity and what that entity is or the essence of that entity. Uh, yeah, maybe one more point is um, the uh, this doctrine of um, generation and corruption as being distinct from motion of, of various kinds. So for Aristotle, motion is the term used for uh, change of any kind. So um, uh, a change of, of qualities, um, an augmentation or diminution uh, in, in uh, quantity uh, of whatever kind, or local movement, so uh, a movement from one place to another. Uh, these are all kinds of movements uh, of motion in in Aristotle's sense of the word, um, or change in the in the broad sense. Um, but the generation and corruption, or the appearance and destruction of substance, are are not kinds of change um, because there's nothing there's nothing that undergoes change. There there's one time. Uh, when the entity doesn't exist, and then there's an, 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 a, a later time at which the entity does exist, but there's no, um, there's nothing in which the change happens or or that undergoes change, um, and so you, you can't properly speaking describe generation and corruption as changes uh, or as, as motion in in Aristotle's sense of the term, um, and and so. Um, it's because of this. So this this doctrine of the um, exclusion of generation and corruption from the the theory of motion uh, goes along with the doctrine that that motion is always in something that doesn't itself change. Uh, so there's um, those two doctrines are are sort of uh, uh, correlated with each other. Um, that uh, every change is in something that doesn't itself change. 
And another um, argument for this position that, that Aristotle advances is that um, change is always between contraries. Uh, so uh, something that was white becomes black, something that was cold becomes hot, uh, or vice versa, etc. Um, uh, so these uh, contraries um, uh, only only properties have have contraries, uh, whereas substances don't have a contrary. There's no contrary to uh, man or horse or whatever. Um, those uh, entities are uh, what properties inhere in, but they aren't themselves properties. So there's no there's no contrary to man. So it doesn't make sense to say that man uh, would would change or would um, would be subject to to change. Uh, so, uh, or the same thing for horse. Horse, it, it can't become something not a horse. Um, there, there's no contrary to horse uh, in that sense. Okay, so let's go on to the next page if you'd like to read. Uh, yeah. Not a single aspect of the Ionian's element remains but the continuous milieu, i.e. time, place, void. Aristotle endeavors to render relative to form and essence these milieus that are even less consistent than the Quora of the Timaeus which was non-individualized even though it exists. Place is not a universal and indifferent, non-individualized, independent milieu. Aristotle attacks the platonic thesis of the infinite as separate and absolute reality by declaring that every reality of this type is a substance and that for this reason it is individual, whereas the infinite cannot be anything but divisible. The infinite is therefore nothing but the attribute of a substance. The infinite is, is merely in potency. There is no container or infinite element that would be the ever-rejuvenating source of worlds. The infinite and the unlimited are terms that are always relative to the finite, to the completed, in which they are situated as a matter and with respect to which they take on a meaning. It is absurd and impossible to suppose that the unknowable and indeterminate should contain and determine. That was a quote. Furthermore, becoming is not endowed with an unlimited fecundity, since becoming goes from being to being. An element can only be destroyed by giving birth to another. Becoming finds the source of its own rejuvenation within itself and not in the infinite. Ultimately, the conception of place ends up turning, turning it into an attribute of the body. The core of Timaeus is refused. Place must be attached to the body so as to turn it into an attribute, all while leaving it separate, since local movement shows that, quote, where once there was air, now there is water, unquote. Another quote, the place exists at the same time as the thing, for limits are with the limited. According to Aristotle, the notion of the void is unacceptable. Insofar as motion always arises between an initial state and a final state, local movements are movements directed toward the proper place of each thing. They are natural movements of the body toward its proper place, or instead they are violent movements that remove the body from its proper place and then stop when the moving, the moving cause ceases to act. These movements could not take place in the void because there would be neither height nor depth. And consequently, there would be no reason for the mobile to stop anywhere or continue moving indefinitely. This second supposition, which constitutes a formulation of a principle that will later be called the principle of inertia, is initially avoided by Aristotle because it is contrary to his representable, the being in act. Motion, as E. Um, Brahier notes, would in fact be considered apart from its physical properties. However, since everything is individual for Aristotle, motion cannot be considered without considering its properties. It can be nothing but an aspect or a consequence of its properties. 
A body in the void would be a body without any physical properties. Here, Aristotle invokes false or poorly observed experiences. Due to the efforts of a sailor, a boat only moves or displaces if the efforts surpass a certain limit. The movement of the boat stops as soon as the efforts stop. Speed is not proportionate to force, but inversely the resistance imposed by the mill. In the void, the speed of a body would therefore be infinite. Time itself cannot be number in number, as Plato would like. It is in fact numbered number. Time is in each movement, whatever it may be, each movement has its duration like an attribute that belongs to it. It is the number, it is the quote, number of movement according to the anterior and the posterior. Neither movement, the infinite place, nor time can be conceived as independent from the individualized being, i.e. from substance. Movement in particular is conceived as consisting not in what it is at each successive instant, but through what it realizes overall in the uh, which is at its center. It is not this quasi-substance proclaimed by Protagoras. Aristotle imagines a substance whose only role is to move regularly, the substance of the heavens, which is different from the four elements. The simplicity of its movement is based on the intention that it manifests. Perpetual and necessary motion is obtained in this way without beginning. For Aristotle, the mover cannot be in act what the mobile is in, is, is in potency. It is, for example, the hot insofar as it is warming up, it is the knower insofar as he is being instructed. Plato considered the mover as moving. Aristotle refuses this doctrine. The unmoved mover is the being in act insofar as it is encountered a mover capable of passing from potency to act. Right. So there's um, a lot going on in this uh, in this paragraph. Um, it's sort of a summary of Aristotelian physics in in like one page, which is a uh, Kind of dense um but so maybe a few a few points to uh start with um so aristotle understands um he, he one of his central concepts of his physics is um the the notion of a place so entities have a, a place um they the place is defined um as sort of the uh reverse of the limits of the entity so if the entity is a sphere then the place of the 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 sphere is everything uh, outside the sphere uh, or surrounding the sphere um uh and then likewise a, a human being is in a particular place insofar as it's surrounded by uh, other entities um uh so it's it's sort of like the world with a whole where the entity is is the place where that entity belongs or where the entity is located um and uh in connection with this doctrine of place there's um the notion of a proper place um for an entity so uh the four elements that make up the world uh the sublunar world i should say um fire water air and earth they each have um uh, a proper place in the world so the the earth entity uh, the earth element, uh, its proper place is at the center, uh, and then uh, the proper place of fire is above, and and so on. Um, and each each uh, elements, or sorry, entities composed of these elements will um, move towards their natural place or their proper place. So heavy elements uh, composed, heavy entities composed of earth, will fall towards the center of the worlds, um, and uh, light element light entities um composed of fire will um, rise towards the periphery of the world uh 
And then in addition to the four elements of the sublunar world, um, there's also this fifth element, the quintessence, um, which uh, um, has the the property of not undergoing um, change uh, except for um, circular motion. So um, the the fifth element is what the, the heavens are made of uh, and they uh, undergo this regular circular motion. Um, uh, and uh, um, yeah, so it's this, this is the, the sort of exception to the four element doctrine. Um, and then um, another, another key notion of Aristotelian physics is the, uh, the notion of potential infinity. Um, so for Aristotle, there's no such thing as actual infinity. There's only potential infinity. So uh, a, a, a line, for example, can be divided into into halves and each of those halves in turn into a half. Um, and, and you can continue that operation forever. There's no um, uh, atoms of which the line is composed. The, the line is not composed of points. Um, but um, just because you can continue this operation forever doesn't mean that the line is actually made up of an infinite number of segments or something like that. It, it's the line as a whole is first and, um, and is what is actual. And then the the decomposition or the splitting of the line into halves is a is something that's potential within the line, uh, but um, it's only potentially infinite because you can never actually realize that infinite um, uh, division of the line. Um, and so uh, there's uh, the the world is um, made up of continuous um, uh, substances. Um, so there's there's uh, the potential to divide spaces uh, or or places. Um, you can uh, divide them potentially uh, to infinity, um, but you can never actually perform that division uh, to infinity. You can only perform finitely many divisions um, in any given time. Uh, and then another uh, key doctrine that um, that goes along with uh, the the notion of potential infinity and uh, the the notion of, of place is um, the non-existence of the void. Um, so for Aristotle, there's no such thing as empty space. Um, so uh, every everything is filled with something. Uh, there's always uh, some entity in in any given place, uh, and and this is sort of a, a tautology because a place is defined in terms of. Uh, of what uh, surrounds an entity. So uh, there's always an entity in a given place. Uh, and so whenever there's uh, movement from one place to another, that means that the surrounding uh, 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 entity is uh, sort of fills in the, the gap remaining behind. So when you have, a, I don't know, say a box that moves from point A to point B, then uh, where the box was at point A is now filled with air uh, or water or whatever the surrounding medium is, um, and and so there's always um, there's always an entity that fills the the place where the entity uh, was before, um, and so all of this all of these physical doctrines um, fit with this notion of uh, substance and the individuated being being uh, primary uh, in in uh, 
both temporally and logically. Um, so rather than having something like in the in the Timaeus, Plato has this notion of Cora, which is this um, sort of empty um, place in which properties inhere, and it has this paradoxical property of not having any properties. Um, it, it, in order to be able to receive properties, it has to not have any properties of its own. Um, and um, it, uh, uh, for Aristotle, this is a sort of absurd doctrine, um, this idea that there's a sort of empty place in which everything uh, uh, moves and, and uh, finds itself. Um, uh, instead, we, we have to picture the world as being full. Um, everything is... Uh, Every place is occupied by something, um, whether it's a a, a body um, or a, um, like a, a solid body or a medium of some kind, like air or water. Um, and uh, and so because of this, um, the there's nothing like this um, principle uh, that it, of of Cora that Plato had, which is a sort of non-individualized principle in which everything else inheres um so it's only uh everything is is full and everything is um uh, every place has some uh substance in it and so some of the arguments that plato gives against the the notion of the void um so the, this is again tied to his um his uh general physics um uh, so motion for Aristotle has to do with some sort of uh, uh, force that, that moves an entity. So it's only insofar as there's something that moves the, an entity that it will, um, that it will continue to move. Um, and so, uh, and then uh, this motion is uh, inversely proportional to the resistance of the medium. So, um, uh, in a given medium in water, uh, the same amount of force uh, has less effect than um, the the force um, that moves an entity in the air. Um, so if you uh, try to throw uh, a rock in the water, uh, you'll find that the rock won't travel as far. Um, and the difference in the distance that the rock will travel with the same throwing force um, is the difference in the resistance of the two mediums, the water and air. Uh, and so because of this uh, doctrine, um, if you had a void, so if you had uh, a space in which there was nothing, there would be no resistance. And so there would be an infinite speed um, uh, with any given force um, of, of motion. So um, again, the, the infinite um, can only ever be uh, potential for Aristotle and not actual. So this is an absurdity to say that there would be a motion with infinite speed would be a, an actual infinite um, and not a potential one. Uh, yeah, and so this this notion of uh, motion as being um, caused by a force um, has to do has to do with um, like we can we can understand Aristotelian physics in modern terms as being a, a, a physics of um, of uh, within a fluid. Um, so it, it has to do with the motion. Of entities that are surrounded by a fluid of some kind, whether it's air or water or whatever, um, and uh, um, in in this context, this principle is correct. So, um, of course, through uh, resistance, um, entities lose the 
um, lose motion to the environment, uh, the surrounding fluid, um, and will eventually come to a stop if they don't have some sort of um, uh, force that is uh, pushing them into motion. Um, but in contemporary physics, we have, or uh, you know, post-Galilean physics, there's this notion of um, uniform motion as being uh, uh, as continuing indefinitely unless uh, another force counters it. So um, there's a, a completely um, contrary system of physics. So it's one in which we have a void uh, in which there are entities um, that uh, there are bodies that that move. Uh, as as long as they um, don't encounter any force that will um, counter the movement. So uniform motion in the void will continue indefinitely. Uh, and so this is completely um, a completely contrary system of physics compared to Aristotle. So this, this is why people talk about the Galilean revolution. Um, so it's, it, it sort of overturned the whole conception of physics that, that had been accepted since, uh, uh, well, for several hundred years uh, under Aristotle's influence. There nevertheless remains a difficulty in this world composed solely of individuals. And this difficulty is paramount. Is the substance of a being the composite form and matter or instead substantial form, which is the being's essence? This problem is not posed for God, who is pure act and in whom, <clears throat> in whom thought has no other conditions besides itself, since it is without matter. God is eternal substance identical with his essence. There is consequently a vast law of imitation. God is the type that will undertake imitating the substances born from the combination of form and matter. But this conception of a relation of, limit, of imitation poses a system in which an individual being is not solely what it is, since it tends toward another being superior to it. If particular beings were substances, they would not need to be governed. Yet Aristotle cites Homeric verse, which he takes as the expression of the reason why he adopts monotheism, quote, the rule of many is not good, let there be one ruler, unquote. The science of natural things becomes the effort to know the echelons of a hierarchy of unmoved movers, all the way from God to souls and to every form. In this hierarchy, each term is the final cause that orders the inferior terms. Uh, for all things, quote, for all things have by nature something divine in them, unquote. Another quote, man is begotten by man, but by the son as well. Unquote. All changes have their material conditions and elementary forces, but they have their veritable and final cause in the form toward which they are oriented. The living individual manifests this aspect of finality very particularly. In their exercise, the vital functions reveal the purpose eh, of the organs and of their components, bones, muscles, nerves. The soul, substantial form, is the first entelechy of a natural body that has life and potency. The soul is therefore the principle of vital activity, the unmoved mover of this activity. Consequently, the soul is part of the individual, whereas in Plato, it was a migrating voyager ever tormented by the desire to, quote, unscape from the earth, thereby fulfilling its proper destiny by passing from body to body. Soul and body arise and disappear together. Each living being has a unique soul. The individual is a being that transmits to another perishable individual the form of the fixed incorruptible species. There is always a specific identity between the generator and the generated. There is a continuity between species, but this continuity is rigorously static. Unlike in the evolutionist thought of Empedocles, there is no dynamism of the species and of all species together that would constitute a unity of phusis. 
species are solely constituted by individuals, and there is no force of the species that would be exterior to the individuals. The complete and absolute character of each individual being does not allow a specific dynamism. The similar always produces what is similar to it. This is how the living being can imitate the course of the course of the stars and attain perpetuity. In the living being, the faculties of the soul are principles of unity through the finality of the functions they control. Thus, the sensible function controls the anatomical and physiological function of the sense organs. The nutritive function controls a whole mechanism of corporeal actions that effectuate the assimilation of food by the body. Um, yeah, let's stop here because it's uh, a, a page-long paragraph again. Yeah. Um, right, so uh, a few points here. Um, so the Aristotelian uh, doctrine of, of God is um, uh, what well, is a, a bit obscure because it's only in a couple of places that that Aristotle really talks about this in uh, in the metaphysics and um, in uh, uh, um, De Anima. Um, I think that's it. I think those are the only two places that he talks about um, God. But um, there's one of the sort of key functions of God in Aristotle's system is um, as the prime mover. Um, so um, motion is always um, uh, motion is always from uh, is always um, uh, instigated or or brought about by something that it doesn't itself move. Um, and so this uh, this doctrine um, is uh, sort of realized at the level of um, like local motion. It, when you consider like the movement of an arm, for example, the arm moves relative to the body, which doesn't itself move. Uh, so the muscles of the arm have to be anchored in the body, um, and uh, the muscles bring about the the movement of the arm. Um, through uh, or in connection with the the trunk which doesn't itself move uh, and uh, the same principle applies to the universe as a whole um, so we have um, if if there's motion in the universe there has to be something that doesn't move that brings about that motion and and this is the the unmoved mover uh, or the the prime mover um, which is responsible for motion in general um, and and this is uh, what Aristotle calls God, um, and there's also some pretty obscure passages where he talks about how how God has this um, function or um, activity of thinking uh, itself, of thought thinking itself. Um, this is what God is 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 a thought thinking itself, um, and uh, what exactly that means is something that. Um, you know, Aristotle scholarship for centuries has been sort of debating and discussing. Um, but um, this is also tied with the doctrine of um, um, the priority of actuality over potentiality. So um, God as the prime mover is um, uh, is something completely actual. There's no potentiality within God. Uh, and uh, it's as as an actuality, as something that is pure act, uh, it, that um, that God is able to impart motion on uh, entities that contain potentiality within them, uh, which make up the the universe. Um, so that's that's the first bit on on God, um, um, right? Uh, and then 
he passes, Simon Don here passes to a discussion of the um, Aristotelian uh, biology. Um, so the, uh, and then the biology in, in Aristotle, as, as I've um, sort of described a little bit earlier, the biology in Aristotle is always um, uh, a functional biology. And so um, a lot of the, or, or there's a part of the um, biological doctrine which we find in the text on the soul. So the soul of a living being is the the sort of principle of life of that being. Um, and uh, different kinds of living beings have different different kinds of souls. So there's the nutritive soul that um, all living beings have, uh, and um, plants have only a nutritive soul. Um, and then there's um, uh, a sensible soul that animals have uh, as uh, in addition to the, the nutritive soul. So um, it's a, a soul, uh, a capacity to um, receive the forms of entities through sensation. Uh, and so all animals have a sensitive soul. Um, and there's the rational soul of human beings, which is capable of, of thought. Um, and uh, right, so these uh, forms of the soul are each um, char characteristic of a species, which as we discussed earlier, the species are, are fixed. Um, so there's no, uh, there's no sense in which um, one species arises from another. Uh, there's a, a continuity of the species, but it's a sort of a static um, hierarchy of species um, with human beings as the, the highest um, uh, the highest species uh, because we have the capacity for reason. Um, and then let's see, what else do we have in this passage? Um, and then there's the difficulty uh, or the, the question. Um, where is that? Yeah, there's the, the question of um, which which part uh, or what what is it that we want to describe as being um, the the true uh, substance. So do we want to say that the substance is the form and matter together? Or do we want to say that the form itself is the substance? Um, and this doctrine or this question uh, is not one that Aristotle gives a clear answer to. And so there's um, within the Aristotelian tradition, there's a debate over this question. Um, but um, there's, uh, yeah, so you can either um, treat the, uh, the combination of matter and form as being the true substance, um, or you can treat the, the, the substance as being essentially defined by the, the form, um, the, the essence of the entity. Um, let's see, is there anything else to go over? Yeah, that's the next bit. Um, yeah, I think that's the main, um, mainly what I wanted to say about that bit. So maybe we can go on to the next page, um, which I can read. Um, right. Furthermore, and inversely, the study of each of the functions is oriented towards the study of the superior function, particularly that of intellectual thought. Consequently, sensation already separates form, which provides intuition of the sensible proper from the matter of objects. This intuition prepares the highest intuition, which is the intelligence's intuition of indivisible essences. The intelligence perceives the forms or essences without matter extracted from all the particularities that accompany them in the sensible. By way of abstraction, it makes the intelligibles, which were merely in potency in the sensibles, pass to act. In this sense, there is in the organization of the individual's functions a certain finality that establishes a convergence and a unity of structure. 
Nevertheless, there remains a serious difficulty in the conception of the individual. The intelligence that thinks passes from potency to act. However, in virtue of Aristotle's conception of being, only a being in act can make another being pass from potency to act. The intelligence in potency therefore requires an intelligence in act in order to think. Is this intelligence in act interior or exterior to the individual? This incorruptible and eternal intelligence can be part of the individual soul only with difficulty, since the entire individual is submitted to generation and corruption. Moreover, if the intelligence is exterior to the individual, the problem of the rapport between the human individual and this separate intelligence becomes quite difficult to resolve if we remain faithful to the Aristotelian conception of individuality. In fact, it seems that the intelligence in act can be assimilated to the mover of the spheres, which is eternally actual thought. Consequently, something remains that is in the individual without being a part of the individual, properly speaking. Aristotle says in the generation of animals that the intelligence is added to the soul by a sort of epigenesis and enters into it, quote, from outside, end quote. Therefore, it seems that the individuality of the soul loses its distinctness. All the faculties of the soul are oriented towards a form that, uh, sorry, toward a term that is superior and in some sense transcendent to them. The soul is made able to, to be in its superior form, a spiritual image of reality, just as in its inferior form, it is the sensible. Quote, the soul is in a way all existing things, for existing things are either sensible or thinkable, and knowledge is in a way what is knowable, and sensation is in a way what is sensible, unquote. The doctrine according to which reality is only composed of individuals becomes complete in an impossibility of enclosing the individual within itself. Here again, we can grasp this paradoxical aspect of the notion of individuality. If individuality is conceived as an open reality that participates in superior realities and seeks to identify with them, even at the price of its primordial unity, as in Plato, the temporal series of the efforts and conversions through which this ascension is effectuated confers upon the individual being a stable consistency and interiority. Conversely, if the individual is first defined as absolute and as the constitutive element of the real, only the two poles of the movement of thought through which this individual is in relation with other realities are conserved. The soul is essentially sensation and intelligence, i.e. other than itself. Everything that is the return of the individual's causality to the individual, reflection and self-consciousness, is absorbed and vanishes in the relation to these two fixed poles, wherein the soul is made purely representative and intuitive of reality. To grasp the being and its activity proper, the relation that joins it with other beings must first be privileged. To grasp relation, the being must first be privileged. Individual reality, which may only be known through a simultaneous grasping of the being and of relation, always escapes. Right, so here, uh, Simon Don raises um, another one of the key problems in Aristotelian uh, doctrine of the soul, which is, um, so the, the intelligence uh, passes from potency to act, so we, we have a, a, a capacity to know something, uh, which then is exercised when we come to know it um, uh, actually. Um, but um, as we've discussed previously, all, um, all motion or all change uh, is uh, brought about by uh, something in act. Um, and so the, the actual intelligence has to precede the potential intelligence. Um, so um, our, our capacity to know something has to be um, uh, solicited in some sense by something that actually knows that something um, that so in in the sort of um, empirical case we can think of um, a student learning some something from a teacher so the student has the capacity to understand uh, geometry uh, and the teacher actually understands geometry and then 
the the teacher is able to um, instigate in the student the transition from potentially knowing geometry to actually knowing geometry. Uh, but um, the the problem is that uh, we have, or not the problem that arises is how this sort of chain um, goes back uh, uh, indefinitely. So someone had to um, invent geometrical knowledge or discover geometrical knowledge um, uh, before um, before it could be taught to anyone. Uh, and then, uh, so that person um, had potential to understand geometry uh, uh, and then pass to an actual understanding of geometry uh, without having a teacher who already understood geometry uh, to to bring about that transition. Uh, and so the sort of solution that, Ar that Aristotle um, ends up with is, uh, again, to point to the prime mover, um, to God as this thought thinking itself, um, uh, this pure actuality. Um, um, and I should, I should say this is a, a sort of um, interpretation of, of what Aristotle says, because he, he just refers to what he calls the agent intellect. Um, uh, and uh, this is in De Anima, and identifying it with the prime mover um, in the metaphysics is a, a sort of interpretive step, but it, it is one that uh, is sort of widely shared. Um, so God as the entity that thinks itself um, is, is uh, what constitutes the prime mover, um, uh, which uh, brings about somehow the uh, transition from ignorance to knowledge uh, in human beings. Uh, and um, again, this, this is a, I mean, the solution itself is, is a difficulty um, because the relationship between um, the individual human being and this agent intellect is a, um, is a, it seems like whatever solution you try to give to this problem only raises another problem. So if you say that the, um, this agent intellect um, exists within the soul of the human being who comes to have knowledge, um, then there's something in the human soul which uh, does not uh, undergo generation and destruction. So it it's uh, it it would have to pre-exist the human being uh, before their birth, and would have to continue to exist after its death. Um, and this is completely contrary to the Aristotelian doctrine of the soul as being the form of a body and uh, as being inherently tied to that body. Um, so that's one possibility which uh, leads to that difficulty. Uh, and then the other possibility would be that the agent intellect is something outside of the human soul. Um, but then how exactly is it that my uh, knowledge of geometry is related to um, God thinking uh, itself um, and, and how is it that this thought thinking itself brings about my uh, knowledge of geometry? This is a, a pretty obscure point that Aristotle doesn't address at all. Um, so again, there's another, the other option leads to this difficulty as well. Um, and so the the sort of bigger picture or the lesson that Simon Don draws from this is that um, there's a sort of, um, there's a sort of, um, 
reversal that happens with the notion of individuality. So in Plato, the individual is um, understood as a, a sort of open reality. So it, it's the, the individual participates in ideas and is sort of directed towards these ideas uh, which exist outside of it. Um, and as a result of uh, this conception, there ends up being a, a sort of a, a full notion of individuality. So the individual is something that has a consistency and a, a history um, uh, which even extends beyond our finite lifespan because the soul um, is reincarnated in different bodies. Um, uh, so starting from this conception of the individual as open to the outside leads to this um, uh, conception of the individual as, as being this sort of uh, consistent and uh, independent entity. Um, and then on the other hand, in, in Aristotle, starting from this conception of the individual as, as uh, self-contained and uh, um, self-subsistent leads to this doctrine of the agent intellect outside the outside of the individual um, and, and makes the individual dependent on something outside of itself. Um, so there's a sort of um, reversal, which we could even call dialectical, I think, uh, even if Simon Dole might not use that term, but um, whichever side of the individual you start from, you end up sort of reversing your position into the opposite of that position. Okay, so let's go on to the next page, if you'd like to read. Uh, yeah. The difference between Plato's ethics and Aristotle's is particularly clear in the following sense. Plato defines virtue as an internal structure of the individual, a regulated rapport between reflective intelligence, anger, and the concupiscent appetites. The just man is just in himself before any exercise of social rapport. He could be just in solitude, and the social condition in which he finds himself does not change this fundamental structure. Conversely, for Aristotle, virtue is an acquired disposition that loses its whole meaning when the material conditions of action are absent. Quote, one who is liberal needs riches to act liberally, and the just man needs social exchanges to be just. For intentions are invisible, and the unjust also brags about his will to do justice. Unquote. Human virtues are inseparable from the social milieu. Courage, liberality, politeness can only be exerted on a certain social level. Quote, hence a poor man cannot be magnificent since he is, has not the means to spend large sums fittingly, and he who tries is a fool. Unquote. Another quote, for it is impossible or not easy to do noble acts without the proper equipment. In many actions we use friends and riches and political power as instruments. Unquote. In this sense, morality is above all an art of mediation, both in the choice of the means of action exterior to the individual as well as in the choice of the ends which must correspond to moderation and to measure, such that a man of tact can define it. Virtue is a milieu that is completely relative to the condition of the individual in society, like, for example, liberality, which is the virtue of the individual whose, conditions, whose condition is easy to moderate, whereas magnificence easy, easy yet moderate, whereas magnificence is the virtue of the rich magistrate who benefits his city. The rules of action are all pronouncements of relation. When it is necessary to act, quote, at the right times, with reference to the right objects, toward the right people, with the right aim, and in the right way, unquote. The platonic image of the wise man in the brazen bull cannot be suitable for Aristotle's morality. 
There is thus an incompatibility between two manners of contemplating the reality of the individual when the individual is envisioned as a being included in the order of simultaneity. This order indeed can be grasped either as a relation of the individual being to other beings and to itself, or as absolute substantiality, which supposes that every being is an individual. But the psychological and ethical consequences of these two conceptions of individuality crisscross to oppose one another once again and at their respective starting point. The individual grasped as the term of a relation appears to be subtended by the internal activity of reflection, of conversion, and to be internally structured in its own way. Conversely, the absolute individual loses its independent internal structure on behalf of a relation that is sensation or intellectual intuition and knowledge that becomes and that becomes virtue conditioned by the rapport inherent to the social situation. The reality of the individual evades ancient thought, which cannot grasp it stably, but merely surround it, can merely surround it with two attitudes that would be complementary if they were not incompatible. With Plato, the individual loses its original independence since it has a place in the cosmos. Aristotle loses its unity, which was established by Socrates due to the link established between self-mastery and reflection. Ethical virtues and dianoetic virtues become separate. The irrational part of the soul remains, remains as an irreducible element that reason can govern but not absorb. Wisdom and justice become separate virtues again. All these virtues tend toward the virtue par excellence, which is divine and transcendent to human beings. No longer paying, no longer implying the union of the body and the soul, faculty of intellectual contemplation. This virtue is isolated and suffices unto itself. Virtue implies a transcendence on the same order as that which characterizes intelligence and act. It turns leisure into the end of action, the search for knowledge, which is like an absolute and which is like an absolute and is separate from political life, introduces a dissociation and individual ends. Social life conditions the contemplative life of the scholar, but there is nevertheless a transcendence in the separated life that is hard to reconcile with the absolute character of the individual. It seems like making this point again um, that you just explained, but with regard to the differences in the ethical theory with Plato ending up with a possibility for a kind of uh, self-enclosed ethical individuality, whereas Aristotle for Aristotle, the individual is sort of open to uh, the, I don't know, the material means of the of relation to other individuals and also um, intellectual contemplation, which seems to be similar to intelligence and act. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the uh, Aristotelian ethics um, has to do with um, the moderation between two extremes. Um, and, and so it's only in a particular setting that um, an individual can uh, find that moderate uh, position um, that is uh, courage or, or generosity or whatever other virtue. Um, so like in the example that, that Simon Dong gives here, you can't be generous unless you actually have wealth to, uh, to give. Um, and you can't, you can't have the virtue of magnificence um, unless you have enough wealth to um, do something that benefits the, the city um, to, I don't know, uh, build a temple or whatever. Um, uh, and so these virtues um, are um, the virtues 
uh, have to do with the setting in which the individual finds themselves in a way that they don't in Plato, um, where for Plato, there's this um, sort of self-contained nature of the individual uh, in relation to the virtues. So um, the individual is able to exercise the virtues um, even in solitude uh, and doesn't rely on a particular setting uh, in which to be able to exercise those virtues. Uh, yeah, I think we can go on to the next bit um, because this is closely tied with what we were just talking about. Um, uh, let me see. Where did we? Where did you end? Where was the last bit you ended with? Uh, I think it was absolute character of the individual. Right. And the next okay. line is the same difficulty. Yeah. Okay. So I'll read from there. The same difficulty which leads to a contradiction manifests in politics. The independence and autarky of the city are necessary conditions of its validity. Plato defined the city as a set of relations. Aristotle renovates him and affirms that a city is not constituted just for living, but for living well and which implies that its end is in itself. But in order to realize the independence of the city, the natural economy and the in economic independence of the family as an economic unit must be realized. Yet this independence can only be realized due to slavery, which is made possible by nature in its obedience to finality. Humanity is naturally divided into free men and slaves. In the tropical climates of Asia, there are intelligent and inventive men whose lack of spirit reveals that they are made to be slaves. Conversely, the temperate climate of Greece produces intelligent and high-spirited men who are free by nature, not by convention. Slaves are tools whose will is merely that of their master. The city's functions of production are entrusted to peoples of another race. In the family, authority is held by the head of the family, who presides over the imperfect souls of the women and children. Therefore, the independence of the family is initially compensated by dependence of the city relative to the countries that produce slaves. On the other hand, the independence of the head of the family citizen is conditioned by a necessary inequality within the family. The political individuality of the family represented by its head results in the maintenance of a double relation of exteriority. On the outside due to the necessity of slavery and on the inside due to the hierarchical structure of the family which deprives slaves, women and children of independence. The city is composed of a very small number of complete individuals, citizens, and a large number of imperfect beings who make the existence of these perfect individuals possible. Moreover, the perfection of the Greek city is conditioned by the imperfection of the immense indefinite boundaries of Asia from whence men who are naturally slaves come. This incompatibility between the Platonic attitude and the Aristotelian attitude marks the end of a period of history concerning the problem of individuality. In the following age, which extends into the Hellenistic and the Roman period, and then into the Christian period up to the Renaissance, the traditions arising from Platonism and Aristotelianism succeed one another by diversifying and sometimes by undergoing changes. But a new path of research opens that attempts to discover the reality of the individual, not in an order of simultaneity, but in an order of succession. Whether the individual is considered in the rapport that it involves with other realities or within its own limits and its particular being, these rapports, these limits, and this being are essentially temporal. The same incompatibility between the interiority and exteriority of the individual becomes manifest here, but this incompatibility appears in terms of life and time and not in terms of structure and rapports defined in an order of simultaneity. It may be that the political and social changes indicating the the decadence of Greek cities contributed to new conditions upon which philosophical thought was able to exert itself. The aspects of becoming are most striking and unexpected in this period of troubles when philosophers are no, are no longer always citizens of the strongest countries and most stable cities. 
but often come from nations desolated by war or devastated by conquest. Uprooted from his native terrain, deprived of his possessions, or living in the anxious abeyance of certain events that are always part of the horizon of the possible, man no longer seeks to define his individual being with respect to an order often less durable than he. City, collective belief, political and social order. He cannot define himself except with respect to himself or with respect to a revelation that lifts him above all the vicissitudes of human affairs. The veritable individual is no longer the city, but in fact the human being, and often more, uh, merely one part of the human being that is considered to be more real and more stable than the other, the soul. Sometimes the very fragility of the individual composite and the narrow limits of his life are what constitute the basis of wisdom for the individual. Uh, so again, we have this, this paradox where the, the um, Aristotelian definition of the city um, as this sort of self-contained entity um, sort of leads on to this um, dependence of the city on what is outside it in order to um, have a source of, of slaves to uh, perform the work that the free citizens um, uh, have to be um, independent of. Uh, so in order to produce something like this complete individual um, that the free citizen is, uh, there have to be um, these non-individuals who um, are um, supposed to be naturally um, fitted to be slaves and who perform the work um, that, that allows the free citizens the time they need to um, cultivate the virtues and to um, to exist as these uh, complete individuals. Uh, and then the last bit here is this transition to the, the next um, uh, section of this text. So um, we have this, uh, uh, for, for Simondon in, in both Plato and Aristotle, there's this attempt to grasp the individual uh, in the order of simultaneity uh, to, to try to understand um, the individual as something that is something uh, that, that has uh, this um, uh, sort of static nature. Uh, and then uh, what happens in the following period is to um, try to grasp the individual in terms of succession and to understand the individual as something that um, uh, exists through time rather than uh, at a particular time. Um, and uh, Simon Dome sort of ties this into the political developments of the era where you have um, uh, constant warfare uh, between the different city-states and the different empires, uh, and you have um, uh, the social order no longer appears as something fixed and um, eternal uh, into which the individual has to be integrated. Instead, the individual is something that can uh, that can actually be longer lasting than the social order uh, if the city is conquered and um, subjected to uh, foreign rule. Um, so in order to understand the individual, you have to uh, understand the individual on its own terms or independently of its insertion into a city or into a social order. Uh, and, and so um, this is the uh, sort of alternate path that arises uh, uh, in the succeeding period. Okay, um, I, I suggest that we stop here uh, and then we can pick up uh, with the brief section on the Socratics next time uh, and continue from there um, uh, rather than starting, uh, starting a new section with just a few minutes left. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, um, 
thanks for joining me. Um, and hopefully we'll have a few more people next time.